you're new here with us today, you've come on a day when we are actually finishing a sermon series in a book of the Bible called 1 Timothy. Uh, we've been in 1 Timothy since, since September, and so uh, if you've been with us, it's kind of nice to, to come to the end. Today we're in chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. Uh, our text today, as I mentioned, is about some big issues of, of certainty in life. You can see that uh, in, in the title of the sermon. Uh, but it's also about uh, finances and money, an issue that Paul has already addressed. This is a letter written from Paul to Timothy. Uh, a few verses ago, he was talking about issues of finance and money, and he comes back to it. And so uh, because of that, I want to begin by talking about a world-famous economist, a uh, world-famous economist that you might not have heard of because he lived a little while ago. His name is Irving Fisher, uh, lived at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. Uh, he was a very smart man, graduated uh, from Yale, top of his class. Uh, he was, uh, many people say, the very best economist that the United States has ever produced. Uh, he wasn't just an economist and a theorist, though he was a, an active investor, a, really an aggressive investor. Irving Fisher, he uh, adopted or kind of advocated the approach of trying to grow one's wealth by predicting business cycles, right? The stock market basically, getting in, getting out, making money, looking for stocks to increase, and then selling at the right time. And Fisher was uh, quite good at it. Uh, by the 1920s, he was a very, very wealthy man. In fact, he was the guy, uh, if there was anyone in the United States you would go to kind of for investment advice, if you could get that advice from him, he was the one. He seemed to know exactly how to time the market, and so he was wealthy, he was famous. But in 1929, uh, Irving Fisher made a statement that uh, really tanked his finances and forever tarnished his reputation. So this is what he said in 1929. The stock market, he proclaimed, has reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. <laughs> that absolute language. You always want to be careful with that. Uh, to make it worse, uh, nine days later... Uh, was the stock market crash of 1929, and the Great Depression began to roll through America. Fisher lost his fortune. Uh, he lost his credibility. See, I share this story for, for two reasons. One, uh, it, it perfectly illustrates what we're going to see in our text. There's, there's a line in our text where the Apostle Paul talks about the uncertainty of riches. We're going to look at that. But also, in fact, more than that, this story highlights something that's easy for us to miss. And that is that in our world, there are a great many things that seem very dependable, but they can actually crumble within a day. And if our lives are tied to those things, then our lives will crumble along with them. So our verses today, in them, Paul confronts the false sense of security that that money brings, that the things of this world bring to us and points us to the ironclad certainty of hoping in God. So that's kind of the big picture of where we're going. I'm going to read the first few verses um, and spend most of our time there. And then there's a little sort of conclusion at the end of the letter that we'll look at as well. Let's begin though. I'm just going to read these verses. We'll have them up on the screen in, in a moment as we work through. So verse 17, Paul says to Timothy and to us, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We'll pause there. So there's really two key points that Paul makes. One having to do with false hope and the other having to do with true hope. 
And really what he's saying is that for us to find certainty, real certainty in life, we need to be able to tell the difference. So first point having to do with false hope is that we need to be able to identify it. We have to be able to identify false hope in our lives. And just to take a step back and remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus, just to remind you, was at the time a very major city in Asia. You can see it there. Uh, Paul planted it on his uh, second missionary journey. It was a hub of economic and cultural activity at the time. Uh, There were a lot of people in the Ephesian church that would have been very wealthy. Would have been traders, um, all sorts of marketplaces to engage in. There would have been another group of people who were trying to be wealthy. They were working towards that. And so um, this is perhaps why Paul is coming back to the issue of money again. Uh, earlier in chapter 6, Paul uh, gave some warnings about money. He said, uh, there, there are dangers in hoping in your money. Be careful about that. Be content in Jesus. Now he comes back to the issue really because he wants to underline a, a greater need that we have, which is to find true hope in life. And he seems to be saying, look, before you can find true hope, you need to identify the false hope. And wealth is one of the most common false hopes in, in the world. It always has been. So we, he identifies in verse 17 two aspects of this falseness of wealth. So the first is this. Um, we see that wealth often gives us a false sense of importance. False sense of importance. Uh, verse 17 says, As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Uh, that word haughty means, you know, you, you think you're pretty great. Right? You have a high, high opinion of yourself. And here he's not just talking about like the rich snob who takes up two parking spaces with his Ferrari. It's, it's not just that kind of guy that we all love to hate. Uh, really what he's getting at is the mistaken idea that money gives you um, greater worth as a person, greater value as a human being. There's a great quote I, I came across, which I think states this really well. Uh, this is from an author named Boris uh, Pasternak. Uh, he wrote uh, the book uh, Dr. Zhivago, which was made into that movie with all the snow. So um, he says this in the book. He said, wealth itself can create the illusion of genuine character and originality. And that really rings true, I think. I think that's in the air we breathe as a culture. We seem to naturally look to those people who have great wealth and think to ourselves, man, they must really know what life is all about. In fact, uh, Irving Fisher, with the great statement, he, while, you know, when he was rich and famous, he wrote a book, and the title of the book was called How to Live, which is a pretty audacious title, I think, right? He's like, you want to know how to live? Ask me. I got to figure it out. And it was a bestseller. Like, everyone thought he must know how to live. Look, he's got all his money. He's wealthy. He's smart. He, if anyone should know how to have wisdom, how to good life, it should be Irving Fisher, of course, when the market crashed, they, the book stopped selling because that connection is there. Once you're poor, you must not know how to live anymore. See, this isn't just true of, of wealthy tycoons, right? When Paul says, uh, as for the rich in this present age, uh, he's not just talking about like the top 1%. Uh, he's, he's talking about all of us. See, it, it doesn't take millions to have a false sense of importance, right? We, we all can, can feel this way. I mean... Uh, just think for a moment about how you feel, not just about your life, but about yourself when you come into some unexpected money. Uh, not just 
Like you find a, a $5 bill in the glove compartment, though that is a great day when you find that. <laughs> but like if, if you get some real money, like you get an inheritance, you get an unexpected promotion at work, there's a certain level where we're just, I mean, we're, man, this is great, right? We can, we can fix up the house, we can, we can do whatever we haven't been able to do, we can take a trip, there's some material things we can do, but, but isn't it also true that somehow we tend to feel better about ourselves? Like we go to bed and we feel more at peace, kind of walk a little taller, somehow that extra money has made it so that we are better people somehow, at least that's what it what often happens in our mind. On the flip side, one of the great challenges of going through financial struggle, of, of going through like, like unemployment or something like that, one of the greatest struggles is, is not just making ends meet, it's also struggling with feelings of worthlessness or invalidation. We begin to worry that we're not really a valuable person anymore because we're not able to, to earn the thing that we, we equate with value. See, Paul here is confronting pride in the rich. But really what he's doing is he's exposing a false connection between our value as human beings and, and the money that we do or don't have. This verse isn't, it's not meant to just be like an attack on the rich, right? It's meant for us to be able to root our sense of self in something more dependable than our wealth. That we might be able to, to have a greater sense of of accurate estimation of who we are because we have a greater hope, a greater certainty, and it's not, it's not in our stuff. The, the illusion of wealth that Boris Pasternak pointed us to is something that we all, we all struggle with. That's the first way in which wealth is, there's a falseness to it, a false sense of importance for us. Uh, but there's more. The second thing, also in verse 17, that Paul highlights is a false sense of security. So he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Uh, so we've seen this play out in the life of Irving Fisher already, but his cautionary tale we know is not an isolated one. We know this is a pattern that we see throughout human history, this kind of thing, that any financial system, any kind of, any system of, of finance that structure in our lives, it, they always break down at a certain point. Uh, one of the most uh, interesting ones, I think, uh, is something that happened back in the 1600s uh, in the Netherlands, and it is now called tulip mania. Have you heard of tulip mania? It's crazy. So, uh, during the Dutch Golden Age, 1630s, uh, the Dutch, we know, loved their tulips. They did back then. They do today. Well, in the year 1636, there were some new varieties of tulips that people produced and brought to market, and the Dutch went crazy for these tulips. This is one of them, the Viceroy. Man, if you loved tulips at the time, you needed to have this flower in your garden. And so the price of the bulbs, they skyrocketed. For example, at the height of tulip mania, one bulb of the Viceroy cost 3,000 guilders. 3,000, okay, you don't know what a guilder is. So a guilder is, an annual salary would be about 300 guilders. So like 10 times someone's annual salary, that's how high, and then you can put it back, Gail. See the graph. There it is. You see what happened. In one, over the span of kind of one year, from November to May of the next year, the, the market just crashed. People were investing in tulips, people putting all their money, borrowing to buy tulips, thinking they could resell them, and then the, the market fell out of the bottom of the tulip market, and everyone, everyone lost all of their money. It was, sounds funny, because we're talking about tulips, but it was devastating, right? People had their whole, all their family's money in these tulips. 
This is what happens. We know this is what happens. We know it today, that there is great uncertainty in world markets. Even locally, there's uncertainty. There's a number of people that have talked to me. I've heard stories on the radio about if you're in a strata right now, you're dealing with all of a sudden a whole bunch of extra insurance costs. Insurance costs are skyrocketing and, and this uncertainty I, I just know is breeding a lot of anxiety. You weren't expecting it, having to deal with it. It's not what you thought would happen. Even more so, I heard on Thursday that the Dow fell by 1,100 points, which is the greatest loss in a single day in, in its history, all related to concerns about the coronavirus. See, we know that this is this is true of all world markets. Despite what the fishers of the world claim, that you know, markets will never fall, despite the fact that we, we really would like to find dependability and certainty in the things of this world, despite those things, the realities of life, they reveal what the Bible just states very plainly. And that is that the riches of this world are not certain. They're not certain for this life, and they're definitely not certain for the life to come. So because of that, as human beings, we usually live with varying levels of anxiety about the future, don't we? We're not sure what it will bring. We're not sure if we will have enough money, enough material goods, if we will be able to make ends meet. But we also have anger and frustration about the present, right? That things aren't easier, that things aren't more comfortable, that we're having to struggle to make ends meet. So the question, of course, is, well, what should we do about that? What does, what does God think is best? But before we get there, I'd like to first uh, say what I think we usually do, what human beings tend to do. And I think we tend to do what Irving Fisher did. So he lost all his money, but then he tried to regain his fortune. And the way he did it is he borrowed money and invested back into the stock market in the same way that he did before. And he lost more money. And he borrowed again, and he borrowed again, and... And at the end of his life, he owed money. He died penniless. See, we know at some level of our mind that, that the things of this world are uncertain. And yet, I think for most of us, we go to bed and what we think to ourselves is, you know, man, if I just had a little bit more money, things would be easier. Things would be better. I'd be more secure. If I just had a little more, a little more business opportunities, a little more land, a little more time, a little more comfort, whatever the little more that we're looking for, that tends to be where we lean, right? That tends to be what we, what we hope in. And part of the reason, to be fair, that we do this is because it, it does seem to work sometimes. For example, it, it very much seems to have worked for this man. You know Warren Buffett? Okay, so Warren Buffett is a very wealthy man. Uh, he's you're usually called the greatest investor of all time. He, interestingly, followed the lead of an economist that lived at the same time as uh, Irving. But for Irving, uh, he, you know, was the, tried to play the market. Uh, John Maynard Keynes was another economist. He also lost his fortune along with uh, Irving. But after that, he decided to change his approach. Instead of trying to play the market, he invested in stable companies that were profitable. And that's what Warren Buffett does. Warren Buffett has earned 20% returns for the last 30 years. His net worth as of January is about $88 billion. That's how much he is worth. Uh, Warren Buffett is not going to die penniless. He doesn't have enough time to lose all of the money that he has. Okay? 
Now, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if Warren Buffett uh, just has the money or if he really hopes in the money. But here's the thing. He won't die penniless, but he will die. Not to be unkind, but he will, he will die. In fact, he's, he's 89, so that's going to happen sometime fairly soon. And so any, any sense of comfort, any sense of certainty that he has in his wealth, it will evaporate. And that really is what our text is leading us to, to really question. It's leading us to consider the deeper levels of uncertainty that we have as human beings if we are hoping in things of this world. See, there, there isn't enough money, there isn't enough stuff in the world to save us from death. So because, because God loves us, because Paul loves the church, he is writing these words for us to examine our own hopes, examine our own certainties. The value of trials in life and the value of considering death is that it does tend to reveal what you really hope in. It sheds a light on things in a way that we don't, we don't tend to look at things that way because usually we're thinking day to day, week to week. What Paul is saying is that for us to have real certainty in life, we need to identify our false hope and then we need to embrace, we need to find and embrace a true hope. And that's, that's how the text shifts now. So second point, first, identify false hope. Secondly, embrace true hope. And we find it also in verse 17. He says about the rich, they're not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So you see really what Paul is saying here. He's asking the question, the hopes that you have, do they really work? Like, Whatever you're hoping in, whatever you're living for, does it actually have the power to help you at all times, no matter what happens in this life, and for all time, like after death? Because if it doesn't, then it is a false hope. And he's, he shows a contrast here in the language. He says, rather than hoping in the riches of the earth, which are limited in their abundance, limited in their power, you should hope in the one who has infinite wealth, and the one who has a heart to bless you in infinite measure. He says, they are to hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Unlike any of the markets, stock market, real estate market, job market, God's market of blessing will never have a downturn, will never run out of funds. See, God is not a system of redistributing wealth. He is the source of wealth. He's the source of life, which means that there is... There's a never-ending supply for God in terms of his ability and his desire to bless us, to, to provide for us. God is a constant source of life itself. We see it affirmed over and over again, both in our lives and in, in the word of God. Look here in the book of James. James 1, 16 and 18 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Saying, look, God, God doesn't change. There's no variation. He is going to continue to bless us. In fact, that statement that Irving Fisher made about the, the sort of permanently high plateau, that is rightly applied to God. That is who he is. That is how he deals with us. You may, though, want to push back a bit on that. You may have some questions about that, especially if, if you're new to the church or kind of exploring Christianity in a sense, because 
You may look at verses like James where it says that in verses in our text, but then you may look at the world and, and you could come back and say, you know, Matt, I've seen the world that God made. I've seen the people that God made and I'm not sure that I would describe God's blessings and provisions as rich and unlimited. As I look around the world, there seems to be a lot of people who are in need. And what's God's answer for that? How do we explain this seeming discrepancy between what is said about God and his character and his actions and yet the reality that we see? What's God's answer to the obvious need in the world? Well, part of the answer we find in verse 18. Part of the answer is us. It says there of the rich, verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The Bible affirms the, the, the reality we see around us that we live in a fallen world a world where humanity has turned our back on the wisdom of God and now there's greed and corruption is rampant and so there is a very uneven distribution of wealth. We see that in our world and in the Bible. But we also see that God has sent the church into the world to care for those in need. That's part of our job. That's part of what we're being called to. We are to do good. We are to be rich in good works. We're to be generous locally, globally. That's why we have things like the Benevolent Fund here at the church because we are to give out of our abundance, and then care for those who are in need. It's why we do things like the cold, wet weather mat program, where we invite in those that are at this point in their life homeless and need care. We, we do that because we see it as part of God's mission for the church and because we really care for those who are in need. That's part of the answer. But the more complete answer is to go back to the root of our hope. And we find this in verse 19. So uh, the rich, us, really are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. So if we think that the best help that a human being can receive is material help, is, is just food and clothing, then we have a very limited understanding of what it means to be a human being. There, are, there is help that God can give in the short term but he is most concerned with helping us for the long term. Human beings need more than material life. We need eternal life. We need more than material help. We need spiritual help. See, God could fill everyone's bellies, fill everyone's bank accounts, and we would be comfortable, we would be happy, but we would not be prepared for eternity. And in fact, for, for many of us, we would be hindered from even seeking out a hope for eternity because we'd be content with what we have here and now. You see that mostly in the West where we're generally well off and generally not really interested in the things of God. See, what people really need, what God knows that we really need is to address our deeper hunger, our deeper needs of life, like, like being loved perfectly, like having a hope that endures, like having a life that goes on beyond the grave. This... This is why Jesus came. He came to earth to bring real certainty into uncertain times. He came to bring real life to those of us, all of us human beings, who have a temporary life that will end in death. This is the greater hope, the truer hope that God brought for all of humankind. The challenge, though, for humanity is to really appreciate the value of this greater hope. Most of the time, we tend to lean towards the material goods that God can give. Let me give you an example of this. 
Uh, you remember the story, this is from the Gospels, where Jesus, uh, he's doing ministry and uh, he's feeding, he's gonna feed 5,000 people. Remember the story? Uh, there's a whole bunch of people, he's teaching, they're hungry, it's the end of the day. So he takes some loaves and some fish and he prays and they multiply miraculously. There's tons and tons of food. Everyone goes to bed that night. Oh man, their bellies are full. They are feeling great. They wake up the next morning though, and of course the bellies are empty. And so they go to find Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus does not give them more food. Instead, he rebukes them. Look at John 6, 26, speaking to the crowd. They're coming. Hey, you got more of that bread? That was really great. He says, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. See what he's saying? He's like, look, you're not interested in me. You just want, you just want your bellies full. And just to be clear, Jesus isn't looking for an ego boost. His, his concern for these people is that they saw a miracle of God they saw a supernatural miracle of God that should have blown their minds and the next day, the only thing they can think about is that bread. He's saying, look, you're, you're focused on, you're working for a blessing that is so temporary. It's, it's gonna melt away, it's gonna perish. You should be focusing on, on the food that leads to eternal life. That, that language is consistent throughout the New Testament. Right? Eternal life, we find it again in our text, 1 Timothy Right? He's writing to the rich and saying, look, they should store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. We should not be distracted by the material needs that we have. They're not nothing. We should have a job. We should seek to, to be able to earn a living and all that, but we should have a greater appreciation for that gift of God, that hope in Christ that will take us beyond this life and into the future. See, practically speaking, let, let me ask this question. When you hope for things, what do you hope for? If you're a Christian, when you pray for things, what do you pray for? Are your prayers filled with requests for food that will perish? I mean, I, this is convicting for me. Think about all the things that I pray for they tend to be the material goods of this world. Things like, things like money, things like health, things like greater comfort, things like greater opportunity or, or material blessing. Let, let, me, let me put it in perspective. What if God were to give us everything that we hoped for and said yes to all our prayers, what would we get? Would we get life forever or would we get a comfortable life until we die? Which is of greater value to us? What is it that we're most focused on and most hoping in? Because the challenge, of course, is if we're focused on all these material, uh, temporary blessings, when there are uncertainties in the world, when they evaporate, when they waste away, then we're racked with, with despair and anxiety. We don't have a hope that endures. See, Jesus, Jesus said this in John 10.10. He said, I came that they, that humanity, may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. There's a lot of people in our world that are proclaiming this is the way to live, like Irving Fisher, right? Here's how you live. Here's joy, here's happiness, here's peace. Jesus says, I came so you might have abundant life. He's the only one that can make good on that promise. Because his, 
His work that he did was not just to improve our existing life. He came to give us a totally new life. He did the very thing that we needed to bring certainty in our lives. He conquered death. You see the the difference? He didn't just work on tweaking this life. He worked on ensuring that we would have life forever. That's the gospel. That Jesus came to live the life we could not live perfectly without sin and then went to the cross and died in our place. See, the, the reality, to speak frankly, is that we don't, we don't deserve any hope. You realize that, don't you? That we turned our back on hope at the beginning of humanity. Every moment of the day that we turn our back on God, live our own lives, decide that we don't need God, is, is adding up the sin in our lives that means that we, we don't deserve a second chance, we don't deserve to have life forever, and yet God loves us. He's filled with grace and a desire to bring us that thing which we don't deserve. So we sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to conquer the grave, be raised to new life and say, look, if you hope in him, you have faith in him, then you will have a certain hope. Hope that goes beyond the grave. When, when Paul says in this text here that we are to store up treasures for ourselves, it doesn't mean that we're like doing good works to earn our way into heaven. What it means is that we're banking on the thing that we've been given. So that when we live a life that's truly hoping in Jesus, we will have a security that can't be, can't be altered, can't be lost. And it means then we can freely give away our earthly security. That should be a picture of how the church acts the world over. Right? That people come, people are in need. We, we freely give. We do good works. We're generous. Why? Because that's not where our security lies. It's easier to be ready to share when you're not hoping in the thing that you're sharing. That's the call on us as a church. Now, now there is um, an important practical question here. Because as you read through the text, uh, if you notice, there, there are some instructions that seem to pull us in two different directions. Okay, so on the one hand, God says in verse 17, um, look, or Paul says, God is the one who gives us everything to enjoy. Okay, so there's a sense in which clearly we should receive the stuff from God and enjoy it, but also we're told very clearly we're not to hope in that stuff. In fact, we're to give that stuff away a lot of the time. And so you might kind of wonder, how can I uh, enjoy something but not hope in it? Like, isn't that doing the opposite thing at the same time? One answer to this question that the Christian church gives is, well, the best thing to do is to live like Jesus. Jesus was homeless, he was poor, he had sandals, he had a toga. That should be a picture of the church, right? That we, that we don't try to gain any wealth because then no one could save us for hoping in our wealth to be like, ha, I don't have any, okay? <laughs> that is simpler. That is, that is a very simple, clear kind of way to live your life. The only problem with that is that it goes against certain verses of the Bible, like the one we just read in verse 17 about enjoying our stuff and this one in Ecclesiastes, Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.19, which says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Seems very clear that God, as the giver of good gifts, wants us to actually enjoy these gifts. That's usually why you give them. So again, how do we enjoy the stuff that God has given us but not hope in it and be ready to share it? Well, the answer is, Uh, is that we should have earthly enjoyment with an eternal perspective. 
Earthly enjoyment, but with an eternal perspective. And actually, this is outlined uh, really clearly by Paul in another letter. We're going to jump to 1 Corinthians. Uh, Here he's talking to a bunch of Christians, and he's basically explaining, look, here's how you should live. Okay, so here's what he says. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So that last part is the eternal perspective. Right? Paul's saying, look, this, this world is not going to last forever. If you read the end of the Bible, you'll see Jesus returns. There's a new heaven, new earth. This is not going to go on forever. So what do we do? Do we stop living in the world? Do we stop engaging in the world? No. No, we're called to go into the world. We're called to get married, to rejoice, to mourn, to buy and sell. Basically, it means do, do the life with the people around you and the culture around you that, that you see. You should definitely do those things. You should enjoy those things. But, but you should always have an eternal perspective in mind. So let's zoom into one of these uh, instructions. Because I think it'll help us just know how we should do this. I wanna, I'm going to flip it. The, the one about marriage, uh, I want to phrase it this way. From now on, he says, let those who have husbands, I'm going to flip it for the, for the ladies here, let those who have husbands live as though they had none. And some of you ladies are saying, I already lived that way, Matt. It's easy. I don't, it's, it's not, a, not a struggle. But, but hey, what he's saying here, like, what is he saying? How can you have a husband and not have one at the same time? He's saying, look, you, you, if you're married, then it's not like you should get divorced because you know the end is coming. You should be married. That's a good thing. You should enjoy your husband, but you should remember that marriage is a temporary thing. And so that, that kind of gives you, it tempers your enjoyment and your frustration if things go poorly. Because sometimes our husband is fantastic and we rejoice and we're so glad for him. But, but in that, we should rejoice, but not fully, not more than we would in the fact that we have Jesus. And by the same token, when things go badly, when there's frustration, we, can, we have a sense of guarding on our heart that our spouse is not our greatest joy. So there's a sense of genuinely enjoying that which we have, but not to the same extent that we do the greater eternal blessings of God. And he says we should do this with everything in our life, right? With our wealth, right? We should still buy and sell We should still be actively involved, but we do it with a greater security, and so it it changes the way that we see everything. In fact, a good picture, if we're to understand what the the teaching of this text means for those who know Jesus, it comes down to that idea of grabbing tightly. We've seen it a couple times in uh, chapter 6, that we are to, to grab on, hold tightly to the eternal life that God has given us. And if you think about it, just as a mental picture, if we're holding tightly onto the life that God has given us, everything else can be held loosely. When you're holding on loosely to the things in your life that that are still, don't get me wrong, there is some level of importance. You need to have a job. It's good to have a relationship. There are many, many good things, but because they're not ultimate things, if they get taken away, we're not desperate. If someone asks us for them, we give freely. If we see opportunity to bless someone else with them, we give generously. See, when it says be ready to share, what it really means is that we know where our certainty lies. We know what true hope we have. And because we have that true hope in Christ forever that cannot be taken away, everything else we hold loosely. 
This is a picture of what it means to live a godly life, one that honors God and one that helps others. It's something that we need to grow in. We need to grow in because I would guess, like if, if we ask the question and we look down in our hands, metaphorically, what are we holding on to right now? There's probably a lot of things that we're holding on to more tightly than we should. And if you're not sure what that is, just ask yourself the question, like in this past week, where did you feel uh, anxiety? Where were you worried? Where were you frustrated? Where were you angry? Probably that's because there's something that is, you're holding onto it uh, very tightly. You're hoping in it to a certain extent and either it, you're losing it, it's being taken away, something's happening. And your greater security is, is not in Jesus at that moment. See, this is a text that really does get down to the nitty-gritty of how we live. But I hope you see that Paul's desire for us is to actually have greater freedom and greater joy in life, a greater ability to weather the storms of life, and certainly a greater ability to approach death with joy and with hopefulness. Now, I mentioned that there is a couple verses that end our, our, uh, the letter, really, the whole thing. And so I want to read those because uh, they're a nice capper kind of to what we've been talking about. Uh, Paul ends this way. It's sort of a personal address to Timothy. Um, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. That language of guard the deposit is, is kind of financial language again. Uh, back then, they didn't have deposit boxes, like safety deposit boxes. So if you were going on a trip and you wanted, you had your, your uh, valuables, you would give them to a friend. Maybe in a box or a jar, you'd say, keep these safe for me, please. When I get back, the idea is that the friend would guard that good deposit and give it back to you in the same condition. So the good deposit that Paul has given Timothy is, of course, the gospel. The very thing that we've been talking about, the very thing that he's hit on again and again throughout his letter, that the best thing, the, the thing of greatest value that Paul has, he has passed on to Timothy. And what he's saying to Timothy here again is, look, Timothy, guard this good deposit. Don't let it change. Because there were people in the church, false teachers in the church that were trying to add to it, trying to distort it, trying to make it about more than just G Jesus. And he's saying, look, Timothy, if you are to truly benefit from this hope in life, you have to guard it. You can't let it be changed. And you need to pass it on to others in the same condition so that they might also have that same hope in life. See, the world back then is very much the same as the world today. And that means it's a world with a whole lot of supposed certainties, a whole lot of things that people are being tempted to hope in. And what Paul is saying here to Timothy is, look, the church, the church should be the one place where we can find a true and certain hope, a hope that will never fail. He uses language like the church should be a pillar and buttress of truth, that we ourselves are to guard this deposit, that we are not allow others to speak into it, to change it, that we are to be faithful with, with it. But if we're to do this, we ourselves, we need to be sure about what we have. Let me ask you again, how certain is your hope? Like this morning, if, you, if you're not a person of faith, that's a genuine question the Bible asks over and over again for all people of all time. How certain is your hope? It's meant, hopefully, 
to have you consider the claims of Jesus and the hope that he brings. If you're in that position, man, I'd just tell you, we'd love to talk with you more about that. We'd love you to come down after, love to pray with you or just explain more to you. Really, the overarching concern of the church, of God himself, is that everyone would have that hope. But if you have it, if you have it, then the rest of the verse really comes to life. Because the challenge is, if you have it, what are you holding on to? Are there other things that are preoccupying your mind and your heart? Are you buying things because you don't feel good about yourself? Are you going on trips because you have no peace in your life? It's not that you shouldn't go on a trip. The question is, why are you doing it? What level of hope are you placing in the things of this world? The greatest answer that we can give is, is none. None. All of my hope is in Christ. And so I'm able to engage in the world in a way that is generous and free for the love of others and for the glory of God. That's what we're being called to. Really for our good and also for his glory. So let me pray, pray that for us this morning. Lord God, we are thankful for, for texts like these. I'm thankful, Lord, even though it's, it's hard to hear. It's hard, Lord, to examine our lives when we see how often we hope in things that really are, pay no dividends. Lord, the, the truth is that you love us enough to push us in many of these practical areas of our lives. And God, I pray that, that you would help us to respond in faith. I pray, Lord, especially for those that that wouldn't say they have faith. I pray, Lord, that this would be a time where they re-examine what hopes they have. And Lord, that they are led to see that your love for them means that they can have a hope that endures through this life and the life to come. That Jesus, you died in our place so that we would have that hope. But God, I also pray for those of us who, who say we have faith. And yet the truth is that there's many times in our prayer life, in our thought life, in the way that we live, that we're, we're demonstrating a hope in something else. God, would you... Would you convict us of that, Lord, and may we repent? May we simply say, I've been hoping in the wrong thing, and may we find a greater sense of peace in you. Lord, may you also help us to be a people that are generous, to do good works, to freely give for those around us, so that we might help others, and so that we might have opportunities to share the true hope we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, for those that are struggling this morning. Lord, so many areas of our life are so uncertain. I pray, please, Lord, that you would bring peace, that you would bring comfort, and that we would know that you love us because of the cross, because of your word, and because of the ministry of your spirit in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.